thanks to the Newhouse Center for the Humanities for sponsoring and hosting this uh, post-Yom Kippur treat. Uh, the, year, the year 5773 seems to be going swimmingly so far. Yesterday, we got ourselves sealed in the Book of Life, or so we hope. And today, Nathan Englander, saving us a subway ride for which there is no tabloid long enough, comes to us. Nathan Englander is the author of the novel, The Ministry of Special Cases, and the story collections for the relief of unbearable urges and what we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank. He has received, among other honors, a Guggenheim and a New York Public Library Fellowship, a Bard Fiction Prize, and the heretofore mentioned Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award Prize. I won't try to number the languages his work has been translated into, though I bet there are quite a few. What I will do is to try to put his career in context by saying that if you've been feeling belated lately, despondent about the last vestiges of the old country disappearing as your aunts and uncles and mothers and fathers disappear, despondent about the loss of the myriad stories that are buried with them, and the jokes, and the ability to tell the jokes, and if it seems further that there can be no more Malamuds, Paleys, or Singers, if in short, memory seems to be dying and the blues have got you down, I would adduce as evidence, to the contrary, Nathan Englander's stories. I'll talk about one of these, the title story and what we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank, not only in the hope that it gets someone else to talk about what I talk about when I talk about what we talk about when we talk about <laughs> Anne Frank, but, but also because it really grabs me. Maybe you remember the Raymond Carver story, what we talk about when we talk about love. A cardiologist and his wife are at home drinking gin with their friends, Nick and Laura, another younger, newer, more amorous couple. Home is Albuquerque, so there are two couples, one's older and one's younger and newer and more amorous. I could say that again. Um, home is Albuquerque, though they are all from somewhere else. The cardiologist and his wife are discussing or arguing over the wife's violent ex-boyfriend whose passion for the wife was so strong that it led him to, to beat her and, once she left him, to shoot himself. The wife says that however crazy the ex-boyfriend was, she knows for certain that she was loved. The cardiologist denies that this was love. If such a passion can be said to be love, he says, he wants none of it. Both members of the couple listening to the argument manage to keep out of it, but as the cardiologist gets drunker, his compliments to the woman and the other couple become more direct. And there are other hints at his and his wife's disenchantment. The story ends quickly, you know, Raymond Carver's famous economy. The debate undecided, the cardiologist and his wife's estrangement suggested, if not assured. The talk about love seems as likely to sunder as to unite may be heartbreaking. Still, it is only the heart, and whether this is understood to be the human heart or the bourgeois heart or the transplanted from out-of-state New Mexican heart circa 1980, however it is understood, this is the heart that has its own reasons and that, in contrast to the ex-boyfriends, is free and adaptable. The characters are all on round three, four, or five of love, as well as of gin. They've loved before and would again, the cardiologist says. They even despise the very ones they used to love, apparently, as they love themselves. What changes a generation later when the setup is nearly the same? We are in Florida instead of New Mexico, and the couples have children. And the ostensible subject isn't love anymore? Is the substance of the conversation necessarily so different when to talk about love, after all, it is said, is to talk about ourselves, and when, as the ubiquity of love suggests, people may not be so different from one another as they are likely to suppose? Oh, and did I mention that instead of gin, the couples drink vodka and smoke dope, and that instead of Nick and Laura, the other couple, Mark and Lauren, during their upbringing in the US, have turned Hasidic, made Aliyah, and become Shoshana and Yerucham? And that instead of love, the couples play what they call the righteous Gentile game, a game which leads them ultimately to consider whether they'd risk their lives for one another. 
That's a question. Uh, this may well be another way of talking about love, but this love hardly seems to be the kind of love that Raymond Carver had in mind. Love in Nathan Englander's hands radiates, benignly or toxically, into public realms. The meaning of the second diaspora, of assimilation, of consumerism, of intermarriage, of obedience to the law of Moses, of Mormon post-mortem conversions, of the munchies, of the whole nine yards squared with no money down. This is what is encompassed in Nathan Englander's character's talk about love. And yet all this consequence only leavens their talk. That's the, I'd say that, the nub of the matter. Um, that's what bowls me over. When other writers' characters have ideas this big put in their mouths, they drown, or the reader does. Not Nathan Englander's characters. He's got the touch, and I'm thrilled that he's here. Thank you for that super generous introduction. Um, and thank you all for coming out on this really lovely day. If there were less of us, I'd move it to the lawn right now. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, it's really great to be here. It's a big fat treat. I declare it to be so. Um, after that introduction and already uh, having stolen Jimmy's book, I guess I'll read you uh, part of that first story. I'll read for like 15 minutes so you don't sweat that I'm going to read the whole book. And then uh, I was just going to tell you what we've already been told, and then we're going to chat. All right, then. Here goes. What we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank they're in our house maybe 10 minutes, and already Mark's lecturing us on the Israeli occupation. Mark and Lauren live in Jerusalem, and people from there think it gives them the right. Mark's looking all stoic and nodding his head. If we had what you have down here in South Florida, he says, and trails off. Yup, he says, and he's nodding again. We'd have no troubles at all. You do have what we have, I tell him. All of it, sun and palm trees, old Jews and oranges and the worst drivers around. At this point, I say, we've probably got more Israelis than you. Debbie, my wife, she puts a hand on my arm. Her signal that I'm taking a tone or interrupting someone's story, sharing something private, or making an inappropriate joke. That's my cue. And I'm surprised, considering how much I get it, that she ever lets go of my arm. <laughs> yes, you've got it all now, Mark says even terrorists. I look to Lauren. She's the one my wife has the relationship with, the one who should take charge. But Lauren isn't going to give her husband any signal. She and Mark ran off to Israel 20 years ago and turned Hasidic. And neither of them will put a hand on the other in public. Not for this. Not to put out a fire. Wasn't Muhammad Atta living right here before 9-11, Mark says, and now he pantomimes pointing out houses. Goldberg, 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 Atta. How'd you miss him in this place? Other side of town, I say. That's what I'm talking about. That's what you have that we don't. Other sides of town, wrong sides of the track, space upon space. And now he's fingering a granite countertop in our kitchen, looking out into the living room and the dining room, staring through the kitchen window out at the pool. All this house, he says, and one son. Can you imagine? No, Lauren says, and then she turns to us, backing him up. You should see how we live with 10. 10 kids, I say. We could get you a reality show with that here in the States, help you get a bigger place. The hand is back, pulling at my sleeve. Pictures, Debbie says. I want to see the girls. We all follow Lauren into the den for her purse. Do you believe it, Mark says. 
10 girls. And the way it comes out of his mouth, it's the first time I like the guy, the first time I think about giving him a chance. Facebook and Skype brought Deb and Lauren back together. They were glued at the hip growing up, went to school together their whole lives, yeshiva school, all girls, out in Queens through high school and then riding the subway together to one called Central in Manhattan. They stayed best friends forever until I married Deb and turned her secular. And soon after that, Lauren met Mark and they went off to the Holy Land and went from orthodox to ultra-orthodox, which to me sounds like a repackaged detergent. Orthodox Ultra, now with more deep healing power. <laughs> because of that, we're supposed to call them Shoshana and Yeruchim. Deb's been doing it. I'm just not saying their names. You want some water? I offer. Coke in the can. You, which of us, Mark says. You both, I say. I've got whiskey. Whiskey's kosher too, right? If it's not, I'll kosher it up real fast, he says, pretending to be easygoing. And right then, he takes off that big black hat and plops down on the couch in the den. Lauren's holding the verticals aside and looking out at the yard. Two girls from Forest Hill, she says. Whoever thought we'd be the mothers of grown-ups? Trevor's 16, Deb says. You may think he's a grown-up, and he may think he's a grown-up, but we, we are not convinced. Well, Lauren says, then whoever thought we'd have kids raised to think it's normal to have coconuts crashing out back and lizards climbing the walls. Right then is when Trev comes padding into the den, all six feet of him, plaid pajama bottoms dragging on the floor and t-shirt full of holes. He's just woken up and you can tell he's not sure if he's still dreaming. We told him we had guests. But there's Trev staring at this man in the black suit, a beard resting on the middle of his stomach, and Lauren, I'd met her once before right when Deb and I got married, but 10 girls and a 1,000 Shabbos dinners later, well, she's a big woman in a bad dress and a giant blonde Marilyn Monroe wig. <laughs> Seeing them at the door, I can't say I wasn't shocked myself, but the boy, he can't hide it on his face. Hey, he says. And then Deb's on him, preening and fixing his hair and hugging him. Trevi, this is my best friend from childhood, she says. This is Shoshana and this is Mark, I say. <laughs> Yeruchim. Mark says and sticks out a hand. Trev shakes it. Then Trev sticks out his hand, polite, to Lauren. She looks at it, just hanging there in the air, offered. I don't shake, she says. But I'm so happy to see you like meeting my own son. I mean it, she says. And here she starts to cry for real. And she and Deb are hugging, and Deb's crying too. And the boys... We just stand there until Mark looks at his watch and gets himself a good manly grip on Trev's shoulder. Sleeping until three on a Sunday. Man, those were the days, Mark says. A regular little rumple foreskin. Trev looks at me and I want to shrug, but Mark's also looking so I don't move. Trev just gives us his both his best teenage glare and edges out of the room. As he does, he says, baseball practice, and takes my car keys off the hook by the door to the garage. There's gas, I say. They let them drive here at 16, Mark says. Insane. So what brings you, I say, after all these years? Deb's too far away to grab at me, but her face says it all. Was I supposed to know, I say? Geez, Deb must have told me. She told me for sure. My fault. My mother, Mark says. She's failing, and my father's getting old, and they come to us for Sukkot every year. You know, I know the holidays, I say. They used to fly out to us for Sukkot and Pesach both. 
but they can't fly now, and I just wanted to get over while things are still good. We haven't been to America. Oh, gosh, Lauren says. I'm afraid to think how long it's been. More than 10 years, 12, she says. 12 years ago. With the kids, it's just impossible until enough of them are big. This might be, and now she plops down on the couch. This might be my first time in a house with no kids under the roof in that long. Oh my, I'm serious. How weird. I feel faint. And when I say faint, she says, standing up, giving an oddly girlish spin around. What I mean is giddy. How do you do it, Deb says. Ten kids. I really do want to hear. That's when I remember. I forgot your drink, I say to Mark. Yes, his drink. That's how, Lauren says. That's how we cope. And that's how the four of us end up back at the kitchen table with a bottle of vodka between us. I'm not one to get drunk on a Sunday afternoon, but I tell you, with a plan to spend the day with Mark, I'd jump at the chance. <laughs> Deb's drinking too, but not for the same reason. For her and Lauren, I think they're reliving a bit of the wild times. The very small window when they were together, barely grown up, two young women living in New York on the edge of two worlds. And they just look, the both of them, so overjoyed to be reunited. I think they're half celebrating and half can't handle how intense the whole thing is. Deb says that she's already on her second. This is really racy for us. I mean, really racy. We try not to drink much at all these days. We think it sets a bad example for Trevor. It's not good to drink in front of them right at that age when they're all transgressive. He's suddenly so interested in that kind of thing. I'm just happy when he's interested in something, I say. <laughs> Deb slaps at the air. I just don't think it's good to make drinking look like it's fun with a teenager around. Lauren smiles and straightens her wig. Does anything we do look fun to our kids? I laugh at that. Honestly, I'm really liking her more and more. It's the age limit that does it, Mark says. It's the whole American puritanical thing, the 21-year-old drinking age and all that. We don't make a big deal about it in Israel. And so the kids, they don't even notice alcohol. Except for the foreign workers on Fridays, you hardly see anyone drunk at all. The workers and the Russians, Lawrence says. The Russian immigrants, he says. That's a whole separate matter. Most of them, you know, not even Jews. What does that mean, I say? It means matrilineal descent is what it means, Mark says. It means with the Ethiopians, there were conversions. But Deb wants to keep us away from politics. And the way we're arranged, me in between them and Deb opposite, it's a round table, our kitchen table. She practically has to throw herself across to grab hold of my arm. <laughs> Fix me another, she says. And here she switches the subject to Mark's parents. How's the visit been going, she says, her face all somber. How are your folks holding up? Deb is very interested in Mark's parents. They're Holocaust survivors. And Deb has what can only be called an unhealthy obsession with the idea of that generation being gone. Don't get me wrong. It's important to me, too. I care, too. All I'm saying is there's healthy and unhealthy. And my wife, she gives this subject a lot, a lot of time. Do you know she'll say to me and Trevor, just absolutely out of nowhere, World War II veterans die at a rate of 1,000 a day. What can I say, Mark says. My mother's a very sick woman, and my father, he tries to keep his spirits up. He's a tough guy. I'm sure I say. And then I look in my drink all serious and give a shake of my head. They really are amazing. Who, Mark says, 
Fathers, I look back up and they're all three staring at me. Survivors, I say, seeing I jumped the gun. There's good and bad, Mark says, like anyone else. And then he laughs, though there isn't anyone else in my parents' place. Lawrence says you should see it, the whole of Carmel Lake Village. It's like a DP camp with a billiards room. They're all there. One tells the other, Mark says, and they follow. It's amazing. From Europe to New York and now for the end of their lives, again the same place. Tell them that crazy story, Lawrence says. Tell them, Yuri. Tell us, Deb says. And I can see in her eyes that she wants it to be one of those stories of a guy who spent three years hiding inside one of those cannons they use for the circus. And at the end of the war, a righteous Gentile comes out all joyous and fires him through a hoop and into a tub of water where he discovers his lost son breathing through a straw. <laughs> so you can picture my father, Mark says. In the old country, he went to Cheder, had the payas and all that. But in America, a classic galoosemonger. He looks more like you than me. It's not from him that I get this, he says, pointing at his beard. Shoshana and I, we know, I say. So my father... They've got a nice nine-hole course, a driving range, some greens for the practice putting. And my daddy's at the clubhouse. I go with him. He wants to work out in the gym, he says. Tells me I should come, get some exercise. And he tells me. And here Mark points at his feet, sliding a leg out from under the table so we can see his big black clodhoppers. You can't wear those Shaba shoes on the treadmill. You need the sneakers, you know, sports shoes, he says. And I tell him, I know what sneakers are. I didn't forget my English any more than your Yiddish is gone. And so he says, achshenem dankter and pupik, just to show me who's who. <laughs> the point, Lauren says, tell them the point. So he's sitting in the locker room, trying to pull a sock on, which is, at that age, basically the whole workout in itself. <laughs> it's no quick business. And I see while I'm waiting, and I can't believe it, I nearly pass out. The guy next to him, the number on his arm, it's three before my father's number, you know, in sequence. What do you mean, Deb says. I mean the number tattooed. It's the same as my father's camp number, digit for digit. But my father's ends in an eight, and this guy's, it ends in a five. That's the only difference. I mean, they're separated by two people. And I look at this guy. I've never seen him before in my life. So I say, excuse me, sir, to the guy. And he just says, you with the Chabad? I don't want anything but to be left alone. I already got candles at home. <laughs> I tell him, no, I'm not. I'm here visiting my father. And to my father, I say, do you know this gentleman? Have you two met? I'd really like to introduce you if you haven't. And they look each other over for what I promise you is minutes, actual minutes. It is, with kavod I say this, with respect for my father but it is like watching a pair of big beige manatees sitting on a bench, each with one sock on. <laughs> They're just looking at each other up and down, everything slow, and then my father says, I seen him, seen him around. The other guy, he says, yes, I've seen. You're both survivors, I tell them. Look, look, I say, the numbers. And they look, they're the same, I say. And they both hold out their arms to look at the little ashen tattoos. The same, I tell them. And to my father, I say, do you get it? The same except his, his, it's right ahead of yours. Look, compare. So they look, they compare. And to us now, Mark's eyes are popping out of his head. I mean, think about it, he says, around the world, surviving the unsurvivable, these two old guys end up with enough money to retire to Carmel Lake and play golf every day.
So I say to my dad, he's right ahead of you. I say, look, a five, I say, and yours is an eight. And the other guy looks, and my father looks, and my father says, all that means is he cut ahead of me in line. <laughs> They're same as here. This guy's a cutter. I just didn't want to say. Blow it out your ear, the other guy says, and that's it. Then they get back to putting on socks. Thanks. Thank you. First thing I'll ask you, which is not in my notes, is um, just listening to you, is um, uh, where does uh, shtick end and literature begin when you write? Uh, I mean... Uh, it doesn't... I guess shtick doesn't even enter into it. Like, in, I think worlds are... I, I so deeply... I'll turn this into preaching. I may go back up and start slamming at the podium. But I, I can't tell you how much I believe in fiction. Like, I do, I do not think... It is a, a construct, or I know it's made up. I'm not going to be silly or ridiculous like I made that up. You know what I'm saying? Like, I know it's written, but the idea, that doesn't mean it doesn't turn into reality. A poem, a story, you know, it's making realities. And more than any other art form, you know, other thing, it's symbols on a page. You know, it's not like, it's the only art form where you say, when did that happen to me? And then you say, oh, I read that somewhere. You don't look at a picture and then it turns into your memory and you think you were like, oh, I was in the Night Watch. Oh, no, you know what I'm saying? This doesn't accidentally happen or that's a real problem actually in your grasp on reality. That's the point. I believe you're making a reality as real as any other reality we're in or, you know, more so. It's, it's an equal reality. You know what I'm saying? It is an alternate reality, but it better be as real. And I think, you know, that's what makes the difference between and. I just read my first two mysteries in 20 years, and I love them and couldn't put them down. I just hadn't read a mystery. I got stuck in an airport with no book, and that's where you can find them. <laughs> but the point is, like, that idea that what makes genre fiction is if it's all, you know, kissy, 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 it's romance. If it's all whodunit, it's a mystery. The point is, if you remove an element of reality, if you, or if you single out facets of reality, it becomes genre fiction. If you're building a real world and you're really trying to, I can't tell you if it succeeds or not, that's for the, the reader. But that idea is that the saddest moments always have joy in them or, or humor in them and, and vice versa. You know, the things to me that are funniest are always have that dark element or that idea and I wish you all like you shouldn't ever receive that. But if you get like a horrible phone call from someone, from a real friend, from someone you're really close to with some nightmarish news, there's always a joke in it. At least the you know people I talk to, and again, you shouldn't know from it. A blessing after Yom Kippur, there should be you know only joy in your lives. But the point is, I feel like that's the idea: is that a multiple real like a reality has to have every element of the world in it at any given time. And I think you know, and we can talk about addressing the Holocaust or that. I think it's actually disrespectful to realities when we can't interact with them in a normal manner. You know, I sometimes get, you know, I just toured this book about the travel. I was just in, you know, Vienna with it in Austria and Holland. And it's very moving to me when people ask questions and say, we have 3,000 Jews left. We have 6,000. Those populations have been, you know, destroyed. I'd say decimated, but it's not 10%. Yeah. It's, you know, destroyed. You know, and it's, it's, it's that idea where I think 
you know, when someone says, how could you write a certain way about a certain thing? There's only two things I know. If you tell me my name's not Nathan now, like right now, I would honestly, I would think, I would pause, I would say, maybe you know something I don't, maybe I'm jet lagged, maybe this is a dream, maybe I've had a mini stroke. Like, you know what I'm saying? There's many, many elements. The one thing I know is that I, that when people try to take ownership of a story or in a very sweet way, but that's a beautiful thing when people feel connected to something and think they own it. But the one thing I know I must, must be mine are the things that I came out of my own head. You know what I'm saying? So I must own the material itself in that way. But about accessing it in certain ways or dealing with it in certain ways, I don't think... We, you know, genocide, every time a genocide is committed in history, it's first the opposite side is like dehumanized. You know what I'm saying? It's that idea where whether it's the Holocaust or Rwanda calling people roaches on the radio, it's always the idea of turning people to animals. The idea of a real thing, if, if a real thing, whether it's the Holocaust or religion or anything, can't stand up to being humanized, it's, it's not going to hold. And first of all, this idea of treating it in a human way, the way real people who interact with it treat it, I also think that's why fiction is subversive. It might get ignored in this world, and thank you all for coming out today, but like totalitarian regimes, fascist governments, they always go for the writers first because it really, it, it allows a real version of something to enter into people's lives who can't experience. So I don't think, you know, that serious subject and being dealt with in that way, like that's how I think people who really live it deal with it, in my opinion. And I think it's really strange to want to put a false version of that interaction you know, into fiction because somebody from the outside might read it. That's how false realities form. Mm. Okay. Uh, so this, um, this deep belief in, in the integrity of, of fictional worlds, uh, when, when, did, um, when did you conceive that? When did it hit you? When did you, have you always had it? Is it, is it? Uh, I, um, I always say that's. I always want these chairs to tip back when it, that yeah. goes straight to the therapy yeah. section yeah. of our. But uh, or, no, I guess, I guess craft. I don't have that many rules. I have one simple. My aesthetic's unbelievably simple, and it's around. My whole life is built around that, which is you can't have too many rules because they fall or have the rules that that you that you then break. You know, like saying this story is a broken rule for me. I never write anything that's close to my own experience. You know, until this book, in a way, and I never. And, uh, and I'd never, the idea of it being tied to the Carver story, which we can talk about that, that decision, but uh, you know, that I would never do that. I used to be offended, or for many years, I was like, there's Romeo and Juliet, West Side Story should be, I love it, but like, how can you write that? There's already Romeo and Juliet. And I, it was an event I did with Colin McCann, who I'm sure you all know if you're here, but Let the Great World Spin and Dancer and many other beautiful books. But Colin used to say, he said, you know, they're the rules writer screams, like, never write historical fiction. He said he used to scream that all the time, and then he started writing about Nureyev, and that's all he does. So those are the rules, make them and then break them. It keeps us interested, you know. But the one thing I understand is that my obligation is to story. That's it. You know, like, that's the whole of the aesthetic. So this is like side stuff that I think about. You know, so yes, when did I decide that it's got to be a real world? I think both from the, you know, I grew up uh, orthodox and I think growing up in a world, it's not something I decided. I think it's just something I, I know because, I mean, but I didn't know those were stories and they don't have to be stories. They can be, they're true to me in my head. That's it. I can hold it in my head. I'm really interested lately. We'll get a whiteboard and I'll talk about like the bifurcated brain. I want like really interested in how we hold conflicting things in our head. But like the point is I'm both not religious, but I'm also sort of really religious in my head. But the point is those stories, I can't, like I was raised in a world of stories, and that's something 
real. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? To have old men with white beards telling us, you know what I'm saying? I don't know who Moses is and Abraham, but like Moshe and Avraham, like the guys from the Hebrew Bible, like we weren't, we knew they were not with us now that they're dead. You know, we don't think that they're messianic or anything, but those stories were all told to me as living and real, and I can see every one of them. I can see that they're racing through my brain right now. I can picture them all. So I think it's always been, you know, a picturing of stories, but I, you know, I, I guess, you know, I've started teaching the last few years, and I, I like it, and I think it forces me to put things, much like coming out here is why it's enriching for me, is I'm forced to discuss these things, but I get to talk to readers and stuff, and I get ideas. But maybe, maybe when I was out at Iowa, I did my grad school there, and I studied with Marilyn Robinson and, and Frank Conroy, and I think maybe then I started to understand, you know, or even undergrad, where I just went go state school up, up at Binghamton with this guy, Barry Targan. But I think, I guess I believe that fiction is a moral act, the writing of it is, and the thing itself has, has a huge moral component, even though I always say with writers, like, don't lend us your cars, don't lend us money, like it's a drunken, you know, a drunken, lascivious, troubled, like that's a separate matter of the messed up histories of just about every single writer ever, basically. But the point is that doesn't matter. Back to a split brain, that's your personal thing. In terms of like a moral core, I, I just, I, I guess I believe religiously in the work itself. Because you know what, if, I, if I'm writing a story right now with you all and I say, it was dark out, it was night, and you all look out the window and it's, and it's the afternoon, we can't communicate. And I feel like in a much more complex level, like a system of weights and measures, like the morality of a work, you know, if I say someone's good and you think they're evil, we also can't communicate. So I can be evil, you know, and, and the reader can be whatever the reader is. But, but when I'm working, I have to understand you know, what right. that world is. And I think, yes, maybe in graduate, when I, or, you know, around the time I started writing or understood, back, back to the physical act of it, when I stopped wanting to be a writer and then understood that it's just an action verb, which I can't say enough times. When you're, you don't ever see someone swimming in the ocean and say, that person's not a swimmer. Like, what else are they? When you're running, you're a runner. When you're swimming, you're a swimmer. When you're masturbating, you're a masturbator. But you don't have to feel guilty about it when you're not doing it. That's the point. So once the weight was lifted, when you are writing, you're a writer. And I think all this formed when I understood that it's an action verb. Like, and when you're not writing, you're not a writer. No, I'm a public speaker right, right. now. Right. No. But I'm saying literally, you know. Yeah. No, it's, or maybe, to, yes, then it's a false advertising. Those, I'm a writer and public speaker. Some of those things can be done simultaneously, and then it's confusing. Yeah, now I want to pick which two. Yeah. The, the swimming and the... Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so uh, one more question to make you want to lean back in your chair, and then I'll go to my list here, which is you can lean forward. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, so when presumably when you went to school, um, you had to, had to do a lot of, Criticism, right? You received these stories, and then you had to interpret them, right? Yes. Now, uh, in, is interpretation also, was interpretation then, or is it now um, more or less the same thing as fiction? You're sort of saying what the fiction is, and so elaborating on the fiction, or is it a different thing? Yeah, workshopping is different. It's, I, I really feel, again, I just read something, I was in... I guess yesterday, I was in London, I read something for The Guardian, they do like a podcast, and I read a favorite story, which I actually reference in this book, and that's why I chose it, but Isaac babbles the story of my dovecot, which I no. probably always call dovecote, I think both, that's probably the dominant, but the point is, as I was reading it, I was making just horrible mistakes in the Russian, and the French, you know, like just all the words, and I didn't even bother to fix it, because I feel like that's part of 
like I didn't have a formal education that way, I had a formal religious education. I feel like it's okay to be an autodidact. I used to suffer over it, and then I, and then I see, you know, that, that that's a wonderful, everyone comes to things in their own way. So I didn't know, you know, I always say I didn't know, you know, I was just, I was an adult, I was probably like 28, and I was like, you know, in that novel, you know, Penelope, and my friend Melissa was like, you mean Penelope? And I was like, oh, I had no, how are you supposed to know that? Right, you know, right, no. We had no Penelopes in yeshiva, not one. Right, but It's like, I, I can't, I just politely said no to a book review that I would have loved to do today. I never feel like I read enough books really to write a review. It would have to be very, like I just, we, I don't know how to do criticism at all. I think I know how to look at a story and, and think about how a story comes apart and tell you what makes it a better story. It's, and, it's craft, it's like building a table. No, but did, did you, the kind of, of interpretation you learned at the yeshiva, Oh, that, were, kind of that kind of story. I'm wondering. No, like I'm in a Bible. School. I mean, is there a, a biblical story that you, you know, you, um, that um, maybe you um, particularly liked to interpret or liked the interpretation? I just that, like that. I see. My, I, I spent the last three. I guess it's four years ago now. It's been out for a bunch of months. But you know, Jonathan Safran Foer, who you know, I've been working. Back to all this stuff about identity, but the last three or four years I've been working on two projects by which I do not identify and from which this book was born. So I was very afraid, uh, Nora Ephron, who passed away recently, like when the first book came out, uh, she commissioned a play or optioned a play from one of my stories and very wonderfully let me write the novel first, which took just a quick decade and then I resurfaced. <laughs> but the point is, uh, there I was working as a playwright and not identifying as a playwright, and that really set my head free. But um, Jonathan Safran Foer uh, talked me into doing a new translation of the Haggadah for Passover, the story of, uh, we're on the East Coast, so I don't have to explain these things here, even if you're not Jewish, you've all been dragged to a Seder or two. But nonetheless, the story of Exodus that's told every year at Passover. But uh, yeah, I think it's really, I was really resistant to it. I just love that, you know, when people who sort of can know your brain or figure it out, uh, get in there. Like he, I was really resistant to this project and he talked me into it and it made me see that, that I just like that way of thinking. So it's not a specific story or a specific commentary. I thought you were talking about how I read like a workshop story or how no, I read a manuscript. No, no, back to, the, back to the Torah, back to basics, to the Bible. But uh, yeah, I, I guess I just love that kind of thing. I'm both love that kind of thinking that, and then I'm tortured by it uh, in, the, in the fact that it's so malleable. I, I guess in the why I like books and not so much and don't do so well with organized religion is the books, I, I really get the books and I really get what's happening in the books and the belief systems. And then, you know, it doesn't bother me as much as an adult. It's really silly for an adult to recognize that their neighbors are human. I'm saying you think everyone's, why do you think everybody's like a hypocrite when you're like 16 is because you don't know to just say, oh, they're human. You know, right. so they say this and they don't. But the point is, uh, I still get upset about, I, I, I guess I think about the social contract a lot and about interpretation. I guess I find it unbelievably rich that anything can be found in anything. You know, I think that's a line in the play even because I'm obsessed with that. So yes, in a year of, did you know we're having an election this year? Did anyone? <laughs> but like, uh, the point is just this torturous thing. Like I just, that's why your neighbors are human. To me, I just... I, I guess that when I see the social contract broken, like educators, you know, teachers have a responsibility, like rabbis, priests, you know, your football coaches, this is, 
there's this like the voyeuristic, troubled, weird sociological thing where we're obsessed with like boogeyman betrayals in society, but there's also because it breaks basic social contracts. But yes, with politicians, I think about interpretation a lot now in a political year when I see the Bible just utterly abused. You know, back to like not feeling confident about my name. The one thing I can read, if you're a religious person who's using that book as a religious text, well, I can read it untranslated in the original and just to me that idea that people you know, cherry pick and then, you know, just the abuse of the Bible in our culture. And then it spread. That's, that's why, back to basic things, you use that, then that tradition gets now spread to the Constitution or that this is the intent of the founding, you know, fathers. They say that all the time. Like, what person with any sense of humility, if I had researched my whole life, the founding fathers, and studied everything they'd ever written and their time and how much a pound of flour costs, because I don't think if you don't know how much that costs that you can really judge anything, you know, you need to know everything about them, how they lived, what they ate, what they slept. I think if I had to say something about their intent, original intent, I would say, I would like to tell you that and I've done a lot of research, and please excuse me, and I say this with his greatest humility, but to the best of my ability, I can only assume, and I'm probably wrong, that this is the intent of our founding fathers. Right. So, you know, that's my point now. And I guess, you know, back to the, I love these stories because I can argue them, you know, part of the Haggadah thing. I sat there with my study partner, and that's the point, you know, like, that I'm thankful that this project came to me is because it was like going back to school. When would I have an afternoon or a day or two days to argue a word or a line or look at all the commentary on it, you know? And then, you know, so yeah, it's become really close to me, but I guess I'm tortured, as, again, that you can see infinite things in every line, and you can't, you know, you, you, you can't be anti-gay marriage if you don't look at the other side of the, it's like the next page, and then you can't believe that we should have borders or immigrations or passports. Because if you say that line, the next thing says anyone who's in your midst, you know, you have to give them the keys to your Lexus right now. You know, you must share all, like this is the idea of those, I guess, yeah, it spreads out. It's both the joyous thing for me, that infinite, readability of every story, and I'm sort of tortured by the abuse in this country to, to be used for, for xenophobia and, and, and you know, selfishness and greed. Some water. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, in this, there's a story in, in this book called Everything I Know About My Family on My Mother's Side. Um, and um, it's written in, as a as a as a list, as a series of, of propositions. Uh, and Proposition 13 um, made my head spin. I thought could, maybe you could um, explain it or help me understand it. It's, if you were to climb into my childhood head and look out from my childhood eyes, you'd see a world of Jews around you, the parents, the children, the neighbors, the teachers, everyone a Jew and everyone religious in exactly the same way. Now look across the street at the Catholic girl's house and at the house next door to hers where the reformed Jews live. Now what do you see? Is it a blur, an empty space? If you are seeing nothing, if your answer is nothing, then you are seeing as I saw. Uh, yeah, I guess, you know, this story maybe starts with your first question in a sense, if it was the first question, that's how I remember it, which is again how story forms. That's my memory. Right. But, uh, but about how realities form, and I guess it's about, the story literally addresses like truth's truer than truth, you know, how, how story forms. But I, you know, I've been writing, first one, I've always dreamed, I just dreamed first of having like the potential to write, then the opportunity, you know, and then there's about learning to live a writing life. And I guess I talk about this material for a lot of years in a lot of places, and I get asked about being a Jewish writer a lot. And I used to, I think, have a much 
longer answer, a much more frustrating answer for journalists, Jewish and not Jewish alike. But it's sort of that, that's the point of my world. And I look at my worldview, which is the point. You're Jewish or you're not Jewish, not you're Jew. You know what I'm saying? That's the great, it's, you know, Jews are a tiny, tiny percentage of this universe. But the world I grew up in is there's Jews and then there's the rest West, of the world. Right. And, but the point is there wasn't even the rest of the world. There was just that world. And I think it frustrates people, but I, I try and clarify that I don't identify as a Jewish writer. I don't see myself as a Jewish writer. I recognize all the characters are Jewish. All the subject matter is Jewish. All the concerns are Jewish. Pretty much all the food is Jewish. You know, like, and I get that. And you know what I'm saying? I freak out. I fly a lot now. And since the first book tour was the first time I'd really flown around this country and looking at the window and seeing that we all I really freaked out. I remember writing in a letter to Alexander Hemmon, the writer, but I just met him and we were exchanging letters and like that the world was cut up into squares. It really upset me. You know what I'm saying? I always, whenever I see an article about like Salamander Bridge built in New Mexico so they can cross the highway, I get excited like it's, un it's not literally unnatural, like the animals can't survive in a grid, you know? Right. So, so to me, we all frame and I'm totally fine for you all to see me as Jewish or call me a Jewish writer, but I, I, I I guess I think for, for me to internalize it, I think of what matters. If you, if you talk, who are arguably our two most legendary living writers in America right now? Both, you know, Philip Roth's turning 80. Uh, uh, Toni Morrison's probably, was she 81 now? The idea that she's still an African-American writer and he's still a Jewish writer, like, how, does she need a second Pulitzer Prize? Like, the idea is they've won everything, they've written everything, they've changed the way we read and they've reached around the world as like ambassadors of our country and yet they would still get the qualifiers. Like, so yes, I understand what their work is but are they not just American writers now? And I think that paragraph for me is thinking about that, like the way I grew up which is only Jew we didn't even have non-religious Jews around us, so it was only religious Jews. And then when I was already becoming rebellious or just fell in love with literature, I went to state school, I went to Binghamton, there was probably 9,000 Jews out of 10,000 people. And then went to, to have my adventure, I went to you know, Jerusalem for junior abroad and met Jews from other countries. And then you know, moved to New York and Brooklyn where guess what, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like that's it, my buddy who is not Jewish at all, like the least Jewish writer you could meet, you know, walks into dinner and says, happy Rosh Hashanah, you know what I'm saying? Like that's, so, so this idea is that it's not, you know, it's only, I really think it's only with African American literature, gay lit and, and stuff with Jews in it that people say like, can I give this to my friend or do I have access to it? I, I just think about it a lot with writing that people, it's really strange to treat it as another world. It's, we almost never read of our own world. It's really fun when you do, when something like, I eat in that restaurant, you see your restaurant in a movie or a book or a place you've been, that's a really special moment, but that's probably like 0.001% of everything you read and see. And it's this idea with these specific things that the question is, you know, that this is other in some way. If a story is not universal, it is not functioning. It is a failure. If it can't even be translated, every word, you know, when you think of translation, every word in the book changed and you still can laugh at the same spot. So to me, yes, I, I really have this resistance to me being asked to see my world as another world. You know, I'm saying that I always use James Baldwin as an example. If you said to him, like, quick, are you, you know, African-American writer or gay writer? Like, we don't have, we don't have his work. He disappears. Like, he is only him. And that's how I read and that's how I experience the world. But yeah, I'm uh, sort of obsessed with this idea of how often I'm expected to look out my eyes and qualify, like look at my own feet and say Jewish feet. Yeah, right. Okay, well, how about, uh, well, when you first read what we talk about when we talk about love and then um, when you decided you might, you know, uh, begin a story from 
the same point and go with it. Um, go your own way with it. Yeah, it's, it's totally uh, opposite. of It developed in the opposite manner. So basically the first two books, I used to be terrified when I was in you know, suburbia growing up and dreaming of being a writer, is that all I did, which is also in the story you read from, that sort of idea, that I have no experience. Like, I've only watched TV, so I don't even actually, all my experiences are not even my experience. They're experiences composed and dramatized by, like, 70s and 80s, you know, sitcom stars. So, right. so uh, you know, so I, I, I finally understood, like, the best, we're on a college campus, I see, you know, some students here. The point is that, that the right what you know is both, like, great advice and the worst advice. I always feel like it's the most misinterpreted, most risk, misread advice. People think, you know, write what you know means the things that you've done. But that, to me, means I don't get to be a writer. You know, when I was starting out, that terrified me. And then I understood that it could be that it's emotional knowing. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, I really wanted an Atari 2600 for my bar mitzvah. But I longed for it. I was desperate for it. I dream but I'm saying if you know, that was a, my point is that's a pure longing. Or if you, you know I'm saying? You ask someone to the prom or whatever, like you get turned down and so you get your heart broken in like ninth grade, 10th grade. That is not to be belittled. Like that is a full on, that can be true heartbreak or true shame or in the purest, most intense form of back to your whole experience. My point is that's what you need for writing. Like that you know, heartbreak can be from, you know, the king and queen break, and that longing can be for freedom or revolution. Like, you can harness, you know, those emotions. So the first books I've always, also I come, I used to call myself shy, and that would that doesn't read anymore, so I call myself private. But the point is I'm a very private family. If I always, if I told, started to tell a private fact now, my mom would appear and stab me in the heart with an ice pick before <laughs> I shared the family secret. I would be dead, it would be like Agatha Christie kind of thing. But uh, I always wrote, for me to be, to have that connection, like the idea, you know, there's a book between us. To have the connection with a reader means that uh, this metaphysical thing has to happen because it's words on a page, there's a physical or a digital or whatever kind of book you have now. But the space has to disappear so that it's a shared consciousness. And that means true openness, like true vulnerability, being truly naked. And for me to do that, and before I would always write distant, you know, so... For me, the decision to write, I didn't write in, you know, in New York City in, you know, 1991, you know, like that kind of thing. I wrote it in Stalin's, you know, prisons in 1952. And for the idea of, you know, my obsession when I was living in Jerusalem and Jerusalem was coming apart, I didn't write Jerusalem in 1996. When I wanted to write Jerusalem in 1996, I wrote Argentina in 1976. Like that, to me, allowed me to truly explore, to truly be intimate, to truly be honest. And with this book, I was just interested in a half step back for some reason, different ideas. So my sister, this is our whole lives. Like, it's just part of our reality. We played the Anne Frank game or the Righteous Gentile game. Which of our Gentile neighbors would hide us in the event of a second Holocaust? <laughs> and when we were around, like, 20, she said about, you know, just when we were turning to adults, probably one of the last times we played, you know, like, you know, uh, the point is I use play because it's simpler, but it's engaged in the pathology is the point. But, uh, but she said about a couple we knew, it's the lines in the story, he would hide us and she would turn us in. And I thought about it and it stuck with me for 20 years because you know what? That guy would hide us. He's that kind of guy. And then he'd go to work or to get groceries and she'd turn us in because it was safer. You know, like I really thought about it. I thought like it's just such a, I, I just hadn't, I really thought about it, but I didn't think about like, this is not a game everybody plays, or this is not how everybody sees the world. And I thought, I'm going to explore that as story. And back to how the play and the, and the translation, working as a translator, like, inform this story. 
is I had to own those identities. You know, like, I, you know what I'm saying? The play, I go into rehearsals on Monday. Like, I have to, at some point, I have to be a playwright if you're writing plays. Like, that's, there's yeah. no other way to, to, to do this. But I, the story was forming, and it was two couples, and, you know, like one couple, then two couples, then the husband's not Jewish, then he's Jewish, then the next guy sprouts a beard, a, a wig drops down. You know, it's the way story forms. You know, she's a shoe, she's a ham sandwich, she's right. a lady from Jerusalem. They just, this is how you develop plot. But as it took form, this gets back to the whole thing about identity and ownership of identity, which is I hadn't read the Carver story in 15 years or something. I was trying to guess, like trying to figure out the last time I had it because I remembered what it is. I, I had a memory. I, I, what I, even more than that, I saw something in my brain. I saw Carver's story. Now, I, there wasn't a movie of the, you know, like maybe shortcuts, or, but my point is I saw the story. I saw two couples at a kitchen table, a bottle of gin between them and the changing light of day. And I thought, what does this mean? That's my memory. I had a memory. I saw something. And I thought, the whole story is gone. Like, Carver's story is gone. It's erased. And I thought, what I have, I own. It changed that whole feeling. And not own it that I would write this whole thing and not acknowledge it, but that at that point, I could align myself, I, I, I built my story, I married my story to my memory. And once the two were built, I thought if you're going to do this, you must acknowledge Carver and you must acknowledge the story. And that's how it became the title story and how it, be, you know, both how it became the title of the book and the title of the story. And I used the same opening end of a phrase to like acknowledge provenance in that way. And I have to say it was of the scariest things I've ever done. And back to Colin McCann, he begged me, he read it early, you know, he's an early supporter book, he read my script and begged me not to use that title. And I, you know, he was really against it. And then after the book came out, he said he was for it. And I didn't understand why he was against it and why he was for it. And it was really sweet is he was being protective because it's, it's a very dangerous, I think it was of the most dangerous choices to, to touch the most iconic story, you know, a legendary American story for, for, for everyone. And the sweet thing is after the book came out, someone wrote a, a review or a nice critical thing, another writer, somebody sent me this thing to see, and I had no idea that Carver story was based on a Chekhov story. And that to me, that to me thrilled me in the sense that it became a tradition then, <laughs> but also that as scared or as respectful or as delicate a matter as it was for me to touch his story, I cannot imagine I never met Carver, you know, he was dead before I, yeah. you know, came out into the world in this way. Like, I can't imagine that he didn't sit and think about the obligations that come with it. Do you know the name of the Chekhov story off the top of your head? I do not, but I'm, it's on my reading list. Uh, <laughs> all right. Oh, those crazy two couples is the Russian translation. No, it's not. That's not the title <laughs> at all. We can, we're, we can t take audience questions if there are audience questions. Yeah. Unless okay. you have another. That was easy. There's supposed to be a moment of high anxiety. Yes, sir. Yes. I don't even know you. I'm usually like, Cousin Masha. <laughs> In the New York where they publish um, many times foreign authors, even though these people may be teaching college courses, uh, you know, as professors, they, they have uh, other people translating their work. So I'm curious, when your work is translated into Hebrew, yeah. Do the translation, or do you get somebody else to do it, and why? Yeah, I, I, uh, it's so funny because I, I, because I, I just co-translated Eckhart Carrot's book into English because doing something biblical, I want to do something modern. But someone just asked me to do a job, and I, yeah, I don't go both ways, is how I say it. But uh, yeah, I don't go, I don't translate to Hebrew. But the sweet thing is, so I'd done this just because I sort of fell in love with translation, and I thought about what it means. Like Edgar Carrot, I love his work. You should all read him. But 
I love his stories in English, but I also really love them in Hebrew. And there was one I just happened to be in Israel the last time I was there like five years ago. And a story of his was in the newspaper in Hebrew. And I just loved it so much. And I thought, I know what this, back to, back to being comfortable in one's own skin or something. I was like, I hear this story. Like, I know what he sounds like in English. And I love his English translations. I think if you read this new collection, you can't see which story which of us did. I feel like it's very smooth in terms of different translator styles. You know, but uh, I just wanted to put that into, I was like, I can, I just wanted to let other people hear what I hear in my head exactly. So anyway, so I co-translated his book and our agents were talking and we're really close friends and it seemed really weird and back to like, you know, old Jewish styles. The only thing we could figure out to do, uh, it was Edgar's idea while everyone was talking, like I didn't even want money, but you know what I'm saying, it's that idea, like it's just icky, the work was done, it's two friends, you know. But it was a labor of love is the point. And then Edgar said, I have an idea, which is uh, a barter system. So Edgar, I don't know if it's, it's sweet to me because I don't know of any, I'm trying to, I keep trying to think of two books where this has happened, but I can't come up. But uh, I co-translated Edgar into English, and he is currently co-translating it into Hebrew. So, yes. Um, I wanted to ask, so you, you saw the two couples at the table, the bottle of vodka in between. And I'm interested in how you made the choice or went through your process about whose voice was going to, whose voice was going to tell the story. Oh, uh, yeah. No, no, I can, I'm happy to talk process. I look nervously. I feel like when I like started, you know, it's a, uh, yes, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be quick about it and I'll let everybody, I will tell you about process. I just always think this maybe also goes back to the religiousness or the belief in craft, which is writing as a process. That should be the most calming thing that anyone who like dreams of rights or writes, whether it's fiction or nonfiction or you're academic or whatever it is that you're writing, it's a process and by definition a process has parts. So you don't sit down. I think it's really sweet almost that all, like so many writer friends I do, we're all really romantical about this idea of like, I had an epiphany or I finally found that draft as if you could have sat down. You could not have written that draft like three years before it got written. It's like a time space, con you cannot shatter the time space continuum. Your face is getting more and more twisted. <laughs> I, I promise this will make sense. So the idea is when you sit down to work, it's supposed to be wrong. You know, the guy's tall, he's short, like, you know, he's got a hook, you know, the, like whatever he wants. He's a parrot on his shoulder now, he's a pirate, like switch that, he's an accountant. You know what I'm saying? Like things take form as you write through them and they are forced and they are awkward and they do read wrong and the rhythms are off because you have, me, Nathan has had an idea and then I'm trying to execute it. Uh, so the point is at some point, a story starts making demands. This is so touchy-feely, I promise I'm cynical and horrible. But at some point, you're listening to the story and that's, you know, I'm sure I, I'm sure I have a million third-person drafts of that story. And at some point, this character becomes dominant. At some point, the narrator wants to talk. And maybe I'll do this as quickly as I can. But the, I did an event, talk, I always say talking to other writers about writing is like talking to other alcoholics about alcoholism. I'm like, Jimmy, I've been drinking two cases of beer a day and he drinks three. And he's like, that's not so much. You're fine. You know, like we all have the same issue to deal with. But I got paired at this event with a neuroscientist and it changed my life. And I'd been resistant. Like I was writing and didn't want to come out. And this nice person who curated this event at the Rubin Museum in New York had asked me, I said, fine. And he, he pairs people like, it'll be like a uh, Jock Torres, the chocolatier, and like sounds like Mouseketeer, and like a, and a psychiatrist who does pleasure centers. So he paired me with a, a neuroscientist to talk about my dreams, but I learned this from my best friend Melissa when I was four, 
because we've been friends since four, which is telling me nobody ever wants to hear your dreams. You know, whenever I'm like, Melissa, I had such a great dream, I don't want to hear your dream. We have a no dream rule in that friendship for the last 100 years. But this neuroscientist, I had been working on the second story in this book, and I couldn't figure it out for days. I would sit there like 12-hour days, sit there, work through the way we, all, we are working, then it's process, but it doesn't feel so great where you write to the point of the story where you're moving ahead, and then go get a sandwich. You know, write for 12, to, to like do all clean and reset up, and it's time to push, but it's the emotional engagement is just overwhelming, or something's not ready, and you work, and it was day one, two, three, I was really, you know, going mad, and then I just, it was the end of, it was like a Monday night, I remember, it was like 9 p.m., and I'm just typing, and I see, like, I'm typing as fast as I can, and I'm getting, like, bits of dialogue, the whole rest of that story that I couldn't figure out is coming out in little fragments, and I don't even have time to finish the sentences. Like this bit of dialogue, that bit of scene, this bit of development, and I'm thinking, don't move. Like, don't interrupt this, Nathan. Just stay cool. The, it, it's happening, so just don't move, and maybe you can get as much of this moment as you can. And what I asked this neuroscientist, if me, Nathan, who's talking to you and sitting here, is thinking, don't move, don't interrupt, just sit in your seat and stay calm and watch this, who's typing the story? Right? I'm literally somebody like there's so my point is it, it seems all like we talk about the muse or whatever but this guy said he changed my life because he was calm and he's a man of science he said oh yes it's a disassociative state it's a standard waking dream he said we all daydream everybody da at some point during the day everyone in this room literally loses like normal you leave this reality you lose normal consciousness you're somewhere and then you go back and he said, this guy said, you know, not many people can do it. You have to really train. It's, you know, whirling dervishes and yogis and religious people and people who meditate. People work for this. That I've spent many years, that's why I sit in the same spot, try and work the same hours, is training your brain to learn to type at the same, that my hands can type when I daydream. So my point is, to give you an honest answer, which takes seven minutes, but the point is, I don't make that decision. The point is, I decide on this story and I work and I suffer, but work Work doesn't get done when I'm trying to work. It does, doesn't get done when I'm deciding on plot. It doesn't, nothing that I, Nathan, am writing intentionally ever shows up in the book. That's all processed to the point where it just is clear. Maybe that's a good point to stop. Thank you all for having me. Thank you so much.